Hello, this is James, and welcome back to The Word is Very Near You, my podcast about God's presence in our everyday lives. I'm in the midst of a series on Lent called Bread and Wine, and lately I've been tracking through the book of Isaiah, who was a prophet from the Old Testament. And the prophets have a way of shaking us, of kind of waking us from our slumber and provoking a holy dissatisfaction with our lives and with our world. And if you're like me, sometimes you avoid reading the prophets for that very reason. It's not always fun to be confronted with your sin or with the sin of the world. But the prophets aren't all gloom and doom. They spoke words of hope and comfort also. Pastor and biblical scholar Eugene Peterson, who died just a few years ago, referred to Isaiah as a symphony of judgment, comfort, and hope. Judgment comprises basically the first 39 chapters of the book. It's pretty tough sledding, reading about all the bad things that are happening or are going to happen to God's people because of their sin. Comfort, chapters 40 through 55. And lastly, Hope, chapters 56 through 66. Isaiah was this magnificent poet-prophet. Some have referred to him as the Shakespeare of the Old Testament because of the way he could turn a phrase. Some of his poetic images are just beautiful, and they have stuck with us for centuries now. I'm sure that in the verses I read this morning, you'll hear some familiar lines. Well, as I record today... It has been exactly one year since the pandemic shutdown began. I remember this weekend last year, like it was yesterday, sitting at home with my family, and all of a sudden the news of the basketball tournaments and March Madness being canceled, and then the news of my kids' schools, spring break being extended by an extra week, and then, of course, eventually the rest of the year. Uh, it was a crazy time, right? All kinds of stuff was happening businesses being shut down, everything being closed, orders to quarantine and to wear masks, suddenly no toilet paper available. It was a panicky, anxious time, right? And think about all that's happened in a year. I mean, here we are now, one year later, with vaccines being rolled out, with case numbers dropping finally instead of rising, schools starting to reopen, businesses starting to reopen, even some states relaxing their mask mandates. It's, uh, it's a hopeful time, right? A new thing is happening. It's almost like a switch has been flipped and a new year has begun. You see something similar happen in Isaiah, where after a long season of judgment and a seemingly endless pattern of sin and brokenness, that God says, okay, enough of that. It's time to reset everything. It's time for a new year to begin. I'm reading from chapter 61 today, starting in verse 1, and it goes like this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, 
the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. This is one of my favorite chapters in Isaiah. There is so much beauty here. I love the emphasis on God's healing God's concern for the broken, God's rescue of people who are oppressed. I love the poetic images of beauty for ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair, mighty oaks. It's, uh, it's an amazing passage. A few observations. First of all, it's generally agreed here that the figure speaking at the beginning is not so much Isaiah himself, but it's this mysterious servant figure. Starting around Isaiah chapter 40 or so, Isaiah begins to describe this servant person who is going to come and accomplish the Lord's will. And he's going to do amazing things. He's even going to offer himself as a kind of sacrifice for God's people. Christians have come to understand the servant as none other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it's significant that Jesus takes these verses from Isaiah 61 and uses them in his first public sermon to inaugurate his ministry. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we do, a few more words about the context here in Isaiah 61. If you've been with me in previous episodes, you recall the context of what's happening here, that God's people had been carried away to Babylon in exile because of their sin. It's the consequences of them rejecting God. And now, after a long period of suffering and exile and being displaced from their homeland, God is saying, okay, a new thing is happening now. It's a new year. I am bringing you back home. I'm going to 
restore hope to you once again, not because of anything you've done. No, but because of my own mercy and love, because I am good, not because you are good. God is doing a new thing out of his own good heart for his people. So here we see God's tender concern and care for his people, that he is going to initiate a reversal of fortune, if you will, in the best possible sense of that phrase. Beauty for ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. They will be called mighty oaks or oaks of righteousness. That's how that phrase is sometimes translated. And that's an interesting change from Isaiah chapter 1, where God referred to his people as withered oaks, oaks with fading leaves because of their great sin. Now they will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This theme of restoration continues in verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So again, the idea is God's people come back home and they begin to rebuild their cities. They begin to make everything new once again. It's in verse 5 that a new wrinkle, however, is added that's significant. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And skipping down to verse 9, their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And so it's clear here that God is restoring his people and blessing them, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of others, for the sake of the nations. And this harkens back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 15, where God says that he will bless Abraham and that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky and that he is blessed to be a blessing is how we often say that, that Abraham was blessed not just for his own benefit and the benefit of his own family, but for the sake of the world, for the sake of you and me. We sing that song sometimes in church camp about Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons has Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. It's we are the descendants of Abraham. God blessed him not just to make him and his family great, but so that he could share his love and his mercy and forgiveness and kindness to the whole world, to Gentiles like you and me. It's amazing. And this is so key because this is where, when Jesus quotes these verses in Luke 4, how the people really misunderstand who Jesus is and what his mission is all about. Listen to how this plays out beginning in Luke 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Up until this moment, it's an amazing feel-good story, right? Local boy does good. Jesus has returned to his hometown. He's preached a great sermon, impressed all the folks he grew up with. It's a poignant feel-good story. Until Jesus speaks again, whereupon things take a dark, violent turn. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, Prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. If you're like me, my first reaction to this passage is, what in the world is Jesus doing here? I mean, he had them in the palm of his hand. They were hanging on his every word. They were speaking well of him. Local boy does good. They were excited to have one of their own be so impressive and have made such a name for himself. What prompts Jesus to turn on them so? And what prompts them to turn on him like this? Because their reaction to his words here is they try to kill him. They drive him out of town, take him to a cliff, and their goal is to throw him off the cliff, but somehow Jesus escapes and walks right through them. It's a dark, confusing ending to a story that began with such promise. Well, what's going on is that it was clear to Jesus that his townspeople fundamentally misunderstood his mission, what he was all about. They kind of looked at Jesus as a winning lottery ticket, right? Here's this guy that we know who's one of us, and he's going to come back home and do great things for us. He's going to make our lives great. He's going to do amazing things for us. In the examples Jesus gives about Elijah and Elisha, those were two Old Testament prophets, right? And Elijah ministered in the land of Israel And yet, Jesus talks about how he goes to a foreigner, a widow, in Sidon. And Elisha didn't just heal people in Israel with leprosy, but went to a Syrian, again, a foreigner who had leprosy, and healed him. It's not that those prophets didn't care or didn't minister to the people of Israel, but in addition to caring for Israelites, they also ministered to foreigners and outsiders and nobodies. And if you keep trekking through the Gospel of Luke, you see this pattern over and over and over and over again that Jesus reaches out to the nobodies, the widows, the foreigners, the sick, the unclean, the poor, 
And these people all end up kind of being heroes in his stories, like the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son or the widow who touches the edge of Jesus' cloak or the tax collector who beats his breast and prays for forgiveness. It's all of these outsiders and nobodies and foreigners and people outside the chosen people of Israel. Somehow in Luke's gospel, the insiders have become outsiders and outsiders become insiders. And Jesus knows from the get-go that his countrymen don't understand that, that they are going to look at him as some kind of superman, that he's come in on his white horse to rescue them and save them and make everything wonderful for them. But he has to correct them at the very beginning of his ministry to be also clear with them about who he is and what he is all about, that his coming is not just good news for them, but it's good news for everyone. If we go back to Isaiah 61, verse 11, Isaiah concludes that chapter with these words, For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. All nations, not just Israel. And so this is a really fascinating passage when you think about the entire sweep of salvation history Starting with Father Abraham in Genesis 15, I will bless you to be a blessing. I'll make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And from Abraham comes the nation of Israel. And Israel goes through this growth period of learning how to walk with God, but then sin and being exiled to Babylon and then being restored from exile. And now Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Isaiah promises and Jesus continues the mission of Abraham of being a light to all the nations. God didn't choose his people just to bless his people alone. God chose them to be a blessing for all nations, all peoples. And that includes people like you and me, descendants ultimately of Father Abraham. So think about today maybe some of the ways that you and I try to contain Jesus, try to define and delimit his ministry or maybe think about the ways that he just wants to bless us there is so much in the modern church today about me and jesus and having a personal relationship with jesus and we focus so much on the individual and think about how jesus wants to bless me and my family but that was never the whole intent right it wasn't just to bless me and my family Jesus's mission is to bless the entire world, our neighbors, people who look differently from us, talk differently from us. Jesus came for all. So instead of trying to hoard Jesus and his blessings like his townspeople in Nazareth did, let's take the broader view that Jesus wants to work in us and through us to help others. We are blessed to be a blessing he wants our light to shine before everyone. May you be encouraged by that hope today. This has been The Word is Very Near You. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode.